In the last episode, we discussed some important strategies for managing stress and encouraging a life of college success for our students. We now turn our attention to a massive political issue that seems to predominate the concern of the educational community today, the test optional movement. Is it a good thing, reducing bias and equalizing opportunity for all? Or is it a disaster, reducing standards and making college admissions a murky mess? I'm joined today by college admissions expert and founder of The College Spy, Michelle McEnany. Michelle is an expert in college admissions and a leader in her field. She has over 20 years of experience as an educator, counselor, and consultant, assisting students in making smart choices to reach their full potential. She has twice led high school college counseling offices and was also previously an adjunct instructor of psychology. She's current on the latest trends in college admissions and particularly in the role of standardized testing in college admissions. Michelle, welcome to the show. Thanks, Alex. So tell me a little bit about your career history and how you got into college consulting. And I'm also curious to hear about, you know, does your experience as an instructor of psychology inform the way that you practice college consulting? Because I saw that was kind of an interesting thing that was in your background. Yeah, sure. So I used to be a school counselor, a high school counselor in, well, I worked in New York, in Maine, and I did a little stint in England, actually working with little kids as a school counselor. And what actually happened was my husband got what used to be something unique, which was a virtual job. And now I think that's very common. And so I think I got one of those too. Yeah. Yeah, so do I. (laughs) And when we were given that location freedom, I decided to leave school counseling and start my own business doing a piece of school counseling that I liked the best, which was college admissions counseling. And I did a lot of training to expertize myself because school counselors, the statistic is that they work about 20% of time. That's the amount of time that they spend on college admissions. And so now I was going to be working full-time in college admissions and charging- What's the other 80%? Oh gosh, I, this would that would take up the whole podcast because <laughs> school counselors are extremely busy people, and oftentimes they are the glue in the cracks. You're doing everything, anything from helping students talking about suicide, lunch duty, at scheduling. I mean, so much that people don't realize. But most of the job really wasn't admissions. So I did a lot of training to expertise myself before launching the College Spy. And now I work completely independently with private clients, helping them with the admissions process and go into a lot more depth than I did when I was a school counselor because the expectation is different. Well, I hope it's more than 20% of your time that you can now devote to the students, right? Yeah, all of my work time, much smaller caseload. And I would say... For students who are working with me all of junior year and then all of senior year, so doing the entire admissions process, building the college list, doing the application and everything in between, I'd say it's about 40 meetings, maybe a little more. And as a school counselor, maybe it was three. Oh, wow. That's incredible. Wow. Yeah. They're getting a very different level of service. Right. To answer the second part of your question about psychology. So one of the things that I did after school was I was an adjunct instructor at Central Maine Community College and I taught intro to psych and developmental psych. And certainly that experience has informed my practice as a college admissions consultant a lot because I taught dual enrollment classes and I'm always being asked by families for advice around course selection and whether kids should take dual enrollment classes 
instead of AP courses, or it depends on the situation, whether they should or shouldn't. But my experience teaching that, teaching college level courses to high school students, my courses were a mix of college students and high school students taking college classes. So tell me particularly about the College Spy, you know, tell me what makes that a unique consulting organization. The name itself suggests a few things. Tell me what it's all about. I'll tell you about the name a little bit. It was not easy to name, <laughs> but I did finally come up with it. And basically I spy on colleges and I tell people about them. So I spend a lot of time not only expertizing myself about the admissions process, but learning about various colleges. So I have been to over 250 colleges myself because I tell the kids that you need to stand on campus and visit in order to make the right decision. And I hold myself to the same standards, right? I'm making decisions about putting these 10 colleges on a student's list. And I want to have been there. And certainly I recommend colleges that I have not been to and based on other research, but there's a 4,000 or so. So, I mean, there are a lot. And I think what makes the College Spy unique, it's partly that, the college knowledge and what I'm bringing to the table. I have always worked virtually with my students, even before the pandemics that used to be unique, but it's not unique anymore. But what it means is that my students, they come from all over the world and all over the country. And so I don't work in one region where knowing the colleges nearby is really important and knowing a few outside the region is also important. I need to know colleges all over the country. And so that's what I make it my business to do. And then the other thing is that we are working to help kids find their best fit. My focus is not on elite college admissions, although I have Plenty of students who apply to elite, prestigious, very difficult to get into colleges, but that's because those colleges are a good fit for them. I'm working with lots of other kids applying to all kinds of schools, but you know, I'm I'm working with students with learning disabilities and making recommendations of good fits for them, and just students with a variety of interests. So, getting back to this espionage, what sort of inside information are we talking about? Well, I mean, part of it is the details about the colleges, right? What does one college have that's a good fit for you that you wouldn't know about? But I do because I've done the research and I've done the visiting and talking to admissions reps. So it's mostly that. But yeah, I guess people could interpret it the other way that I have this inside information. And, you know, in some ways I do because I make it my business to educate myself about admissions from the college's point of view. Because if I can understand where the colleges are coming from, then I can take the situation with my student and explain, this is the difference. This is what you need to do to be successful in the admissions process. I just find the whole topic of college admissions and colleges in general and how they differ from one another, I personally find it fascinating. And so I just keep learning and keep sharing. I'm curious to hear about stories of triumph or failure you'd like to share. Uh, Admittedly, this is a question that I ask a lot of people, and I love some of the answers that I get. So are there any stories that you have that you want to share? I have a lot of things that I'm proud of with my students. Very rarely am I proud of the admissions outcome. I'm excited about the admissions outcome that they got in because that's where they wanted to go or because it's just a highly selective university. It's so difficult to get in. But my stories of triumph are smaller steps that the kids have taken. It's something they learned or something that's a transferable skill, right? So they're really going to take this with them much further than 
just getting into college. You know, it comes up quite a bit. I mean, even just with the kid who told me, you know, about nothing set in stone, that's always in her mind. That's like a phrase that's going to go through her head, like for the rest of her life, you can tell. Right. Yeah. Right. Like, I don't have to be so worried. I can make changes. I can trust myself to do that. A lot of times what happens with kids who are resistant to the application process is in working with me, they become excited about it, partly because I'm so excited about it that it's just contagious, and partly because they realize it's manageable. And as they learn about the process, they find out that they are going to be successful and they're going to get accepted and they're going to get accepted to schools that they like because they're learning about colleges too. And so I'm watching kids constantly go from disengaged too engaged. And it's very exciting, right? It's like they won't do the research. They don't want to look into this. They're avoiding, you know, postponing meetings or whatever. And then all of a sudden it clicks and they're ready to go. I see this over and over again with students. Some kids are excited from the very beginning, but there are just as many, I think, that are apprehensive. One critical thing that we brought up in that first segment was thinking about a college application from the admissions officer's perspective. That, I think, is something that catches a lot of students unprepared. I don't think they have developed the sort of prefrontal cortex to be able to imagine the world in that way, to really truly see the way they look from other perspectives, from other people's eyes. So when they get to an exercise like this, where you're trying to really impress somebody with who you are down to your very core, that becomes very difficult. So getting them to think in those terms, I think can make a huge difference because the motives of the college admissions officer are entirely different than for those of the students or for the parents or any of the other parties that can be involved in these decisions. So I can't emphasize that enough, really, that it's very critical. Somebody should go through that application and think about it entirely from a college admissions perspective. Because at the end of the day, the point of that application is to get into the school. Another important point that Michelle brought up in that first segment was how empowering that process can actually be. I think there may be stigmas associated with the college admissions process and the anxiety that can actually come from trying to determine the next four years, potentially the rest of your life. But I think it can be formational for kids. That She brought up the example of the nothing set in stone, an adage that she had given to one of the students that they never forgot. That, I think, can be energizing for a student, can be formational. and. That's something I think that gets lost in all of the drama of these college applications. Putting a positive spin on this, I think, is really important, especially if you have a student who's a younger high school student or even in middle school, so that they don't get caught up in the stress and the anxiety of the unknown there. Standardized testing today. Could you explain that landscape of standardized testing in college admissions? and explain how we got here, specifically talking about the test blind and test optional stuff. Sure, yeah. So some people feel that we got here because of the pandemic, but it's not true. The very first college went test optional in 1969, and that was Bowdoin College, which is a small liberal arts college, very selective, located in Maine. And so over time, since 1969, more and more colleges have jumped on the test optional bandwagon for different reasons that we can talk about. and. Around the time of the pandemic, 
I think there are about 700 colleges were test optional, maybe a little less. And and now currently we're at about 1750. And just for anybody listening, if you want to know where you can find the information about whether our school is test optional or not, it's fairtest.org, F-A-I-R, fairtest.org is where you can get that latest information on that. So colleges have had good reason to go test optional even before the pandemic. And then of course, with the pandemic, there was a very big concern that kids wouldn't be able to test and they wouldn't be able to apply. And when colleges don't get applicants, you know, they might be worried they can't fill their classes, but there are certain colleges that are mostly worried about how they'll be ranked in U.S. News and World Report, because the more applicants you get, the more people you can reject because you only have space for a certain number, and then the lower your admit rate. So they had to go test optional. And as much as, you know, they might have said, you know, we're worried about you. You can't test. Don't worry. We care about kids. They were worried on numbers also. We'll be nice and we'll say also. And that's kind of how we got here. And many have chosen to stay test optional this cycle for the class of 2022. And there are still kids who are struggling to get a test or to test under circumstances that they're not stressed. You know, so some kids, their, their testing centers are full or they, they are canceled on because of the virus. They have to travel much further early in the morning and, you know, go someplace unfamiliar, things like that. And that can lower your test score. So I'm curious how that shift really has impacted college admissions. You know, that shift to, you said, what, 1750 colleges that are now test optional. You know, how does that change things from college admissions? Well, it allows them to choose whether to send in their test score or not. So they can decide whether they want their test score, if they have one, to be part of the admissions process or whether it doesn't. And I think the way they're mostly affected is they're stressed out because they don't know. They're being told that they'll have an equal chance of acceptance, but they're hesitant to believe that because SAT and ACT is something that in the past, most people have overestimated its importance in, in the admissions process. So to explain further, what colleges truly care about the most out of all the different parts of the application, most of them, GPA and rigor. So the courses that you took, how hard they were, and how did you do in them? Much more important than your standardized test score. So kids are stressed. They're not sure what to do, and they don't have good advice around it. So do you think then that colleges that are going test optional are sincerely not considering the results of the test? Like they're completely blind to that and don't include it in their decision-making process whatsoever? Well, I mean, colleges are handling this different college by college. But, you know, in general, most of them talk about doing a holistic review. So they look at all the parts of the application. And I know you know this, but I'll just explain for everybody else that's listening that, you know, that includes, right, so your grades, the rigor, the courses you've taken, your extracurricular activities, your standardized tests, your letters of recommendation, and your essay. I think I got them all. And so if you apply without a test score, then the colleges don't have that data point. And so they rely on the other data points more. Mm -hmm. But they also know that you didn't submit that test score because you didn't believe it was competitive enough. It could be that it's because you didn't test. And my advice is if you could not take the test, that you put a note in the additional information section of the common application that you actually didn't take the test to let them know why. But you can't lie about this. They know where, you just look up the, on the College Board website with under zip codes where testing was available and where it wasn't. They, they know when it was available to you. They've got a lot of computers and robots and all kinds of things following data for them. 
So, I mean, you can't lie. So for most kids, most my students have all tested and most kids can. And when they're not submitting a score, it's because it didn't fall within the average of accepted students at that university. And there's no way around colleges not kind of knowing that. They might have a, a process for how they evaluate kids who had a lower score because certainly many, many students who have a lower score than the average would be successful on campus. And they might have a reason to accept you and you might still get in. So it's complicated. It's a complicated thing to wrap your head around when it's just you as a kid with your score and your list of schools. Well, so what I'm hearing in this, I guess I'm thinking of it strategically too, is that unless you have a really good reason, like for instance, you were blocked from taking the test that you should probably submit your score to the school and you're not really concealing anything by not doing that. Not necessarily because, so here's the other piece of it. Okay. So this is about the college rankings. So colleges are ranked by U.S. News and World Report, partly on their average test scores, right? And so when they are test optional and they are not submitting to U.S. News and World Report the low end of those scores because those kids didn't send the score. If you send in a low score, they have to report it and they don't want to report that, right? So it's not an easy thing to follow along with what you should do. So depending on the school's needs and how interested they are in staying ranked high and having a low admit rate and whether they need you for that major or maybe your full pay. So they need you, right? They don't have to give you a discount in terms of financial aid. They might want you and be like, oh, we'll take your 540 or whatever when their average test score is a 650 for the math section, let's say. So you should not submit most of the time if your scores fall below what the average of what the schools accept. But when we talk about average, we're usually talking about between the 25th and the 75th percentile, not the 50th percentile. So some kids will not submit, even though they should have, because maybe their score fell in the 33rd percent, right. but they didn't right. realize that's, that's great. Send it in. Well, maybe just take a step back and perhaps parse this movement away from the pandemic, which might be difficult to do to take out that context. But as far as that movement, and you described it historically as already something that was happening and it's just sort of accelerated by the pandemic. Do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing to put it in simple terms and, and why? I think it can be a great thing. So, you know, for me, I'm looking at my individual students and trying to help them. I'm not creating policy, right? And I think it can be a great thing to be test optional for a couple of reasons. One, there are kids who didn't score well for whatever reason, who belong at schools based on their grades, their rigor, and all the other things. They just belong there. It's a good fit for them, and it's the right place. And those kids, it's great that they have the opportunity to apply and throw their, their application in the ring. And some of these reasons could be things like they were sick that day, they had just have test anxiety, or, you know, it could be anything. It could be just having, you know, a real strength, let's say, around math when you're going for engineering, but you're you're still working on your writing skills and your reading skills, right? And, you know, some people are really advocates of test blind. Like, let's just dump these tests completely. And in some ways, I agree with that because, I mean, the tests, we didn't talk about this yet, but they are biased. Kids who are white and wealthy do the best on the tests. And that's not fair. And that's not right for social justice reasons. However, there are some kids who, by taking a test, that's how they can show 
that they will be successful on campus. So I'll give you an example. So let's say you have an alcoholic in the family and for whatever those reasons, student get to, couldn't get to school consistently. But as soon as you remove that student out of that environment, they're going to flourish. That's the kind of kid whose GPA might be a little bit lower because of attendance, but they're going to score super high on the test. Or what about an ADHD student, right? So a student with ADHD can sit down, drink a Red Bull, you know, take their medication, hyper-focus on the test, do phenomenal. And those kids have great strengths that schools that are very selective would love to have those kids be alumni because they're going to be super successful. So those kids would miss out if it was all test blind. They wouldn't be able to show that they are able to be successful. So in some ways, I'd like to let these tests go. In other ways, for the individual student, I mean, I've certainly had kids who their scores are more indicative of how they're going to do in college than their grades across four years. But not a lot of students like that, but some. And I wouldn't want them to miss the opportunity. Okay. In an ideal world, what would college admissions look like to you? I guess I'm asking it specifically in terms of the testing. I mean, in an ideal world, it would be fair that there would be more spaces at schools at the top, I'm putting that in air quotes, for more students who are qualified to go because they're you know, routinely rejecting kids who are qualified because there aren't space. And it would be fair that the right students who get accepted to those schools, whether that be with that test or without it. So would that involve like expanding some colleges or? Oh, I would love that. That would be great. You know, why does it have to be so limited about the, you know, that we only let a certain number of students go to Cornell University or, or Bowdoin even or wherever? You know, why is it a small amount? Why couldn't it be a greater amount that more students would have those opportunities to go to schools like that? That would be fantastic if we could expand that. And if we had tests that were there and kids who had same resources across all communities, I mean, it's my ideal world. I can make it that way, right? That would be fantastic. One thing that stuck out to me about the second segment of the discussion, which I found very interesting, was the importance of being aware of what a particular college is going through when you're thinking about, should I submit my score or should I super score? You know, what sort of approach should I take with my application generally? If you think about all the complications, some we brought up, the internal politics of the college, you know, what sort of direction is it taking? What's their endowment looking like? What are their interests as far as numbers, advertising, marketing on the lists of top colleges? I think there's a lot of complexity to that in particular surrounding test scores in such a dramatic time when it comes to those test scores. So I think developing an awareness However you can do that, whether it's through an educational consultant, whether it's through a college admissions officer through a school, whether it's through going to that college and looking around and breathing the air there and getting a sense of what's going on there, that is information that's invaluable. Because it could be that you're taking a strategy that is entirely antithetical to what the school is trying to accomplish and you don't even know it. Another thing that we talked about a lot Michelle really spoke to sort of the awareness, particular admissions offices to relative value of school when comparing GPA. You know, some of the factors that she brought up that they considered was, well, how did previous students do there? What's the school's online profile? 
the contextual details of how many APs are offered, et cetera. I think those are misleading. So, I mean, let's go through some of those. Number one, how a previous student did from your high school. I'm not sure I want to be evaluated based on how people went to that school. So my fate is basically linked to whoever came before me at that school or particular sets of students. Who's to say that things haven't changed or evolved or that I'm a different model than you know what's come before me. The other thing she brought up was school's online profile. Having looked at a lot of online school profiles and then working at those schools and then going back and looking at those profiles and you know being in and out of the community, those profiles are awfully misleading. I'm not sure they really do much more than market the school in a lot of cases. Mostly they're aspirational. They're what the school wants to be rather than what they might actually be. So I certainly hope that college admissions officers are not taking the school website as a way of determining the merit of that school. And I'd say the contextual factors too, how many APs they offer there. I think that's a bit like reading a story from afar. Who's to say that the student took all APs because their parents forced them to do it or <laughs> or because it was mandatory for the school. I mean, there's just so many factors that can play into that. It's just a whole lot of guesswork trying to determine what a student's like, what their internal makeup is based on their GPA. And the international community reflects that. What is important in international college applications? Number one, test scores. Number two, test scores. Number three, test scores. Because the limit of subjectivity. I mean, you're telling a story of a student, telling a story of a person. How do we measure one story versus another? There's no way to bring a quantitative measure to a qualitative story. I suppose you can, but it's gonna be arbitrary. It's gonna be subject to the same prejudices that you're trying to eliminate. So I have a hard time believing that there are ways of overcoming the objectivity of GPA. Where do you believe standardized testing is gonna be headed in the next five years. So we've got the sort of ideal world that you've given us. Where do you think things are actually going? Well, I don't think the tests are going away. I think we're in five years, we're still gonna have the SAT and the ACT. And I think that the growing trend, right, of test optional admissions since 1969, it keeps growing. And I think it will continue to do so. What's gonna be interesting is the data for the colleges. When they look at, this is how many kids we let in test optional, what the criteria was we used when we didn't have the tests, and then how they did on our campuses. I think that information is going to inform the colleges and just let them decide whether they want to keep it because it works for them or whether they want to let it go because the SAT and ACT. I go to a lot of conferences and what you hear from admissions counselors before the pandemic about test optional. So if their school is not test optional, Oftentimes, the admissions counselors would like it to be, but there are other political factors and forces and concerns that keeps them from being able to make that decision on their own. So it's been described to me that faculty do not want that. They feel they want that test score. They want kids to be coming in ready to perform, and they believe that that score is what's going to let us know whether they are ready or not. Where admissions counselors who have more experience with looking at the whole picture, right, the entire application, are saying, we can tell you without those scores which kids are going to be successful or not. But they haven't been able to implement it until there was a pandemic. Then they were. 
And now they're going to be able to go back and say it worked or it didn't work, right? And schools that have been test optional for a long time, they're going to say it's going to work, guys. We've done it and we're happy with our results. So it's going to be interesting to see, but I don't think those tests are going to go away. I really don't. And I think for some kids, it does help them. I think you're onto something there. So how can parents best prepare for these shifts in five years or so? So if you have like kind of a young high school kid, for instance. Have your kid read. (laughs) They should be reading, right? And they should be working hard to do very well. And I think that families should start the process of learning about colleges and learning about admissions earlier. I think that will help alleviate a lot of the anxiety and it'll help get kids prepared. Yeah. So you don't think it's a bad thing to get kids involved if they're freshmen in high school or, you know, it's not, that's not going to cause more anxiety for them? Well, it depends on the kid, right? And it depends on the parent. But I have some suggestions around that. So here's my suggestions. I mean, you want to create a college-going culture for your child that they feel like they're going to go to college and they're going to be successful and these are going to be the outcomes, right? And one of the ways that you can gently introduce colleges to them is take them to colleges So and do it in ways that are fun. So go and visit the local college when the students are performing whatever the kid is interested in, right? So if they play in school, I don't know, the trumpet, then go see the marching band at wherever or go to shows on campus where the students are performing or go to the sporting events. So you're bringing kids to campuses and you're picking them and you're saying, hey, we're having a great time. Let's go eat in a dining hall. And then, right, you're going and you're eating in the dining hall before the big show and you just pay 10 bucks to eat. Anybody can go and, you know, you get to pick out what you want. You get to use the ice cream machine, which is fun when your kid is young and put all the sprinkles you want on. And then you're just watching the kids like, hey, look at what these kids are doing. Or so-and-so has the same backpack as you or whatever. So I think there are ways to introduce colleges to students young so that they're looking ahead and going, that's going to be me later. And they have some experiences. Another one is, so I have a lot of kids, one of the first things we talk about is setting, right? So you get to choose where you go to college within reason, right? You have parents who are part of this conversation. Do you want to be urban, rural, or suburban? And I have some kids who don't know the answers to that because they have no experiences in those different places. So I would recommend spending time in a city if you're not from a city with your child and walking around and learning how to ride a subway or something like that, or spending time in a rural environment and seeing what it's like to go out for lunch at a small little cafe that closes at two because everybody's, you know, it's just done, you know, everything's closed and because it's a small town. So that the more experiences your children have, they can draw on those experiences when making good choices for themselves around what do they prefer in the admissions process. There's a lot you could do with the younger kids in, you know, up into freshman year. Okay. So if you could give parents one piece of advice in entering next year's college admission cycle, so that would be with the juniors that we have now. So say they have a junior in college, what's that one piece of advice that you would give to those parents? Start visiting colleges now couple reasons. (laughs) One is they might close because of the Delta variant. And so if you can get in on some college tours, do it because you want the opportunity to be on campus. Like I said at the beginning, that really helps kids make choices. The other thing that it helps if you start the college search now and not closer to next summer is helps you be able to utilize early decision applications. And if you apply early decision, 
which I'll just say very quickly, and I have a podcast episode and a blog post about this on my website if anybody wants to look at it, or you could put it in the show notes if you want to share it. Early decision is a binding agreement. You only apply to one college early decision. If you get accepted, you go. You withdraw all your other applications. The reason to do it is for many colleges, it's much easier to get accepted early decision. This is a complicated topic. We could talk about it another time, but the reason why is colleges love kids who love them because they know that kid's coming. It's guaranteed that they're coming. It helps with their rankings. I'll just say it like that quickly. So if your child has the opportunity to utilize early decision admissions, then that's great. And my students who start with me early in junior year or even sophomore year have a much better chance of using ED as a strategy than those who come to me before senior year because they don't have enough information to pick only that one college to apply to. They need more time. So that's my one piece of advice for acceptance. Totally. Oh, that's, yeah, that's great. I mean, when I taught at Taft, there was very few reasons why you would not want to apply. I think the binding one is early decision, right? Just because number one, you have two swings at the, at the pinata, so to speak, you know, the first time around. And then if you get deferred, you get another shot that you have at the regular admission cycle, but your chances are better just by numbers. They are much better. Some colleges accept up to 50% of their freshman class from the D, the ED round. That's a lot. That's a lot. And you're competing against a smaller number of students who have applied ED. So that's a big strategy, but you can only take advantage of it if you're prepared. Otherwise, you could make a mistake and then, you know, make a commitment to a school that you're not ready to commit to. And that's a terrible idea. So, yeah, I want to say thank you very much. This was very interesting. Some great nuggets. Thank you for being on the show today. I really appreciate your insight. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Here are my final takeaways when I reflect back on my conversation with Michelle. Number one, I said it during the conversation, but to me, standards are important. How we determine those standards, I definitely want that to be fair and equitable. You know, we should be living in a meritocracy that is blind to everything but the merit itself. You can talk about implicit biases, etc. You try to do your best to be objective, but if you don't have standards, what we all agree on as these are intellectual standards, this is what we want out of the thought leaders of our community. If we don't have that, if we can't all agree on that, then we risk being mediocre as a society, playing to the lowest common denominator, really. If you read Harrison Bergeron by Kurt Vonnegut, you'll understand that. I mean, in the story, everyone who is beautiful has to wear an ugly mask and everyone who's strong has to wear weights. So that there's equality, everybody has an equal crack at things. And I think that's the risk if you take meritocracy to this point of like, well, everyone has to be on equal ground. Again, you're reducing your society to the lowest common denominator. And I really don't see the point of that. Now, to me, really the focus should be is on improving educational resources so that they're equitable across the board because they absolutely are not. If you look from one town to the next even, you know, some of the educational systems are crap. I mean, the teachers are getting paid nothing. There aren't enough of them. You know, the class sizes are enormous. The resources are terrible. Socioeconomic injustice is insanely bad in the United States. 
I don't understand why that's not the conversation. Why are we talking about racial prejudices? And let's talk about socioeconomics. Let's talk about equality of educational resources, criminal justice, etc. To me, that is where the solution lies. Then we can have challenges. Then we can have standards that we're holding each other to as a society if we have that equitable background. That to me is the key. Second thing that I took away from our conversation too is the notion of what's going to happen to the test itself. SAT, ACT, will schools get rid of it? Will they not? The schools that have eliminated are pointing to these metrics of successes, including the students staying at the school, graduation rates, etc. Again, I find those quantitative metrics of a student, of a person, of an intellect to be misleading. You know, again, after having taught in a bunch of different schools, public and private, high school and college, a kid getting to the end, getting to the finish line, does not necessarily mean that they are quote unquote successful. A lot of them are dragged kicking and screaming over the finish line. I'm not sure I would want them to be making decisions for me in a democratic society, to be in the criminal justice system that is regulating policing my culture because they were able to finish the grade. So I don't necessarily trust those metrics more than how well a student can do on a logical exam that tests their brain's ability to reason. So do I think reform is a good idea? Absolutely. Do I think that implicit bias should be removed from that? Absolutely. Do I think we should remove standardized testing or standards altogether and base our applications on basically storytelling? No, definitely not. I think that'll make the problems that we're trying to solve 10 times worse in terms of who's getting in where. I thought it was interesting also what Michelle talked about in terms of creating a college-going culture for parents with younger kids. You know, taking them to colleges, to sporting events, to, to the arts. You know, I remember going to plays at UConn when I was a kid growing up and just hanging out a lot around the campus, you know, playing tennis on the tennis courts there, or going to Gantle Pavilion, watch a basketball game, or Jorgensen is at the theater there. We saw a bunch of plays there. I think I even took like music lessons on campus. So just being in and around sort of a college environment, I think can have a very positive effect. The culture, I guess, in stores where University of Connecticut is, it really has a trickling effect, I guess, if you live near a college campus or on a college campus like that, or in a college town. And I found everyone in the town to be pretty intelligent, pretty aware at least. And I think that matters when you get to higher education, when you get to time to apply. It's not a foreign thing, it's something you've grown up and around. So I think for those parents who have kids of younger high school ages, find ways to integrate them into college environments. Another thing that I took away from the conversation with Michelle was about the revising of the test. Is it a good idea? What is sort of the direction of things? I would say that it should always be revised. I think it should be a continual process of revision to eliminate any, if there are implicit biases or, you know, testing skills that are not accessible or not taught to all students in the country. I think that should also be a process of give and take. If there are skills that are on the test, those should be sort of taught in all formats in all schools. 
So, you know, I think it's sort of more of a give and take than most are willing to admit. You know, at the same time, you want to avoid the kind of like red tape, like no child left behind mentality because then you're just kind of turning kids into numbers and it doesn't have a good impact. It's well-intentioned, but it boils down education into something that's sort of more bureaucratic than helpful. So that being said, I don't think that our education system should be designed around taking that test. But to some degree, yes, those skills should be taught in every school, in teaching in a lot of different sort of public and private schools and college and high school, etc. You know, I've seen some teachers that have, let's say, departed from an average curriculum. And there were some English teachers in middle school who would put on a song or tell their students to write about the sound of the wind. And like that was their writing assignment for the week. You know, I think you're only as strong as your teachers. And if your teachers are not great or they're not paid well, they're not motivated, they're not intelligent, they're not dynamic people, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much bureaucracy you put in there, it doesn't matter how much you're teaching the test or you're not, it's the quality of the teaching. Let's focus on that. Let's focus on giving enough funding to all school districts in an equitable way. Let's focus on paying our teachers and prioritizing them in our society. I mean, to be a teacher, you need to be independently wealthy because you're entering into poverty. That's not a formula for success for those kids. Wonder why do we have these biases and all these difficulties when we get to college applications? Well, that's why that environment is not breeded equality. Anyways, I think that the test should be continually revised, but really the focus should be on providing equitable resources 